0: This morning, I've been drinking my coffee out of one of my favorite mugs, this one with the words from Isaiah 117, do good, seek justice, and correct oppression. Very appropriate for our world today. But the Christian industrial complex does a great job of profiting off of sticking pithy sayings and verses on various products and getting people to buy them to supposedly demonstrate their faith. Shane Claiborne has famously called this chicken poop for the soul. Now, don't get me wrong, I really like this mug. It's from a not-for-profit organization called the Happy Givers, which does great humanitarian work in Puerto Rico and Mexico and Peru. So I don't feel quite as bad buying this as I do some other, you know, kitschy Christian products. But this mug can be a great illustration of what we're going to be referring to as Coffee Mug Christianity. We take individual verses that we like and we put them on tons of different things without asking ourselves if we fully understand what those verses and the surrounding passages actually mean. I've got the coffee here. I might as well drink it, right? The Bible's filled with passages that can be used to encourage, correct, and challenge us. But we often struggle to give context to these passages and that leads us to confuse the message. It's not enough to simply put a verse on a coffee mug if we don't understand it or let it affect our lives. So this series entitled Coffee Mug Christianity will focus on one familiar verse each week and help us to better understand that verse. And we're going to start off with what is arguably the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16. If we ever memorize a scripture passage, it would probably be John 3.16. It's the verse that you'll most often hear a child proudly reciting from memory. It's that one verse that shows up on large signs and placards at football games and other major sporting events, and they're always located in areas where the TV cameras can't miss them, right? This verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life it's been called the gospel in a nutshell the summary of the good news of Jesus Christ in a single verse and because of this we tend to think that it's relatively straightforward and perfectly easy to understand i'm sure that i've heard this verse thousands of times throughout my christian life and i know that It flashes through my mind every time I see or hear that John 3.16 reference. If you've been in the church for a while, you're probably the same way. Even if you haven't been in the church for a long time, chances are that you've probably encountered this verse in some way, shape, or form. But the question is, do we really know what this verse means for our understanding of Christianity as well as for our daily lives? I'll say from the outset that this verse is so much richer and has so much more to say to us than simply telling us how to go to heaven. When we misunderstand the context and meaning of this popular verse, we miss the fullness of the good news found in Jesus Christ. So I really want to dig into this verse and examine it in close detail today. Let's begin by looking at the word world. For God so loved the world. Normally we just read this word in a neutral and straightforward fashion, as referring to the created realm of the human world, and thus we understand the verse to be telling us that God loves the world and the people he created. Makes sense, right? But throughout John's narrative, the word cosmos, which we translate as the English, English word world, is often fraught with negative connotations. John tells us that Jesus came into the world, but the world did not recognize him. That the world is characterized by darkness. That the world is in need of life and saving. That the world hates Jesus because he illuminates evil deeds. That gaining the world means losing one's soul. That the world cannot give peace. That followers of Christ are sent into the world, even though they're hated by the world. Almost sounds like John might have watched the evening news before writing about the world, right? But it's clear in these writings of John the Apostle that the world has a larger context than simply referring to people and creation in a neutral and disinterested way. Rather, we see God demonstrating his love for a world that's actively chosen to be hostile towards him. We see God demonstrating his love for a world that has intentionally alienated itself from him. We need look no further than recent events, both here and around the world, to see this hostility and alienation. But this is the world that God loves. He doesn't love some hypothetical, neutral, or perfect world. He loves this world, fallen and broken as it is. This is consistent with what the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So the word world in this context refers to all humans without distinction or exception, in spite of the fact that we're part of a world that's hostile to God and alienated from him. This makes the love of God all the more astonishing. God's love knows no bounds in its intensity or in its scope. And this is good news for the world and it's good news for us as individuals because as much as we might not like to admit it sometimes, we are part of the world. When we're at our lowest point, when we're farthest from God, when we're mired in sin, God loves us. When we're hostile, when we're alienated from God and undeserving, God loves us. God loves the world. We also need to discuss the word so, God so loved the world. Now, this might seem like the most insignificant and inconsequential word in this entire verse, but I promise you that this is not like quibbling over what the definition of is is. In our modern way of speaking, we often read God so loved the world to mean God loved the world so much or to be referring to the degree to which God loved the world. And it's certainly true that the degree of God's love, the greatness of his love, plays into this. But the word so here is better understood as referring to the manner in which God loves the world. I like the way the New Living Translation states this verse. It says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world is not telling us how much God loved the world, but how God loved the world. The emphasis is not on the quantity of God's love, but rather on the character of God's love. And this is important because we are commanded to love others the way that God loves them, the way that God loves us. And in order for us to love the way that God loves, we have to understand the way that God loves. That's why it's important to understand the phrase, God so loves the world, as referring to how God loves the world, rather than how much he loves the world. If we focus on John 3.16 as an indicator of the degree to which God loves the world, it doesn't tell us how to love. But if we focus on John 3.16 as a demonstration of how to love like God loves, we can see that we're being called to love through selfless, costly love. Dr. Craig Keener wrote, The cross is the ultimate expression of his love. Nowhere in the gospel does God say, I love you. Rather, he demonstrates his love for humanity by self-sacrifice And demands the same practical demonstration of love from his followers. Okay, so what does it mean that God gave his son? God so loved the world that he gave. Interestingly, this is the only place in the gospel where God is said to have given his son. Elsewhere, it's said that God sent his son. Sending has the connotation of a task or a mission which must be completed, but gave is much more personal, isn't it? Out of His love, God gave His Son to the world. The great Mennonite theologian Willard Swervely summarized what it means for God to give His Son. He wrote, This giving is radical, unreserved, risky, and painful. It's the story we know so well, but we often fail to be moved by its sublime and simple truth. God loves us so much that he gave what he cherished most, his only son. But does that mean that by giving his son, he just sent his son to die for us? No. See, if we just needed Jesus to die, then God could have let Herod kill Jesus when he was just a baby, like we talked about in last week's sermon about the massacre of the innocents. But God gave his son not just that he might die for us, but so that he could teach us how to live. New Testament theologian Marianne May Thompson wrote, While God's giving or sending of the Son into the world for its life, comes to its climactic fulfillment on the cross, all of Jesus's works, words, death, and resurrection affect life and the world's salvation. So God showed his love for the world by giving his Son. And the effect of this giving is that anyone who believes in the Son will not perish, but have eternal life. <clears throat> Excuse me. This isn't restricted to special or specific groups of people, but rather it's open to anyone. The only qualification is to believe in God's only Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Often when we hear the word believe, we tend to think of believing facts, right? And that type of belief involves the mind, it involves recognition of truth, it involves recognizing truth, usually in a temporary or momentary fashion, that doesn't necessarily change anything practical in our lives. I believe that gravity exists, but gravity doesn't move my heart. It's not something that I spend my time thinking about, and it usually doesn't change the way I live my life, other than occasionally keeping me from jumping off of high places. Belief in Jesus is different from believing that gravity exists. Belief in Jesus involves the heart, it involves allegiance to Jesus, and it's a continuous belief that alters everything. This belief should move our hearts, it should always be at the center of our lives, and it should fundamentally alter the way we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. In other words, simply believing facts about Jesus is not the standard. It's not the qualification that this verse is holding forth for us. Intellectual assent is not the belief that rescues us from perishing and gives us eternal life. It must be belief with our whole heart, manifested by our lives in following the way of Jesus. And this belief prevents us from perishing and allows us to receive eternal life. Perishing and eternal life are opposites. Perishing means a broken relationship with God. God gave his son to the world because he knew that without the son, the world will perish. The world is separated from him. This shows us that God has undertaken a massive rescue operation. It's as if the world is a hiker who is lost and if left in the elements too long will not survive. God's reaching out to rescue the world so that the world does not perish. Whoever believes in Christ accepts God's divine rescue plan and is not only rescued from separation from God, but also given eternal life and eternal relationship with God. But that eternal life, that eternal relationship with God is something that starts right now. It's something which we experience in the midst of our everyday lives on earth, now. Eternal life doesn't only start after physical death, it starts before death, too. In his book John 3.16, What's It All About?, Murray Harris writes, eternal life is both present and future. It involves knowing Jesus and God, here and now, but this knowledge continues forever this is a major part of the good news. Followers of Jesus Christ have eternal life right now. Later in the Gospel, John tells us that Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This abundant life encompasses not only eternal life with God, but also the daily earthly life of God's people. see, God doesn't just idly love the world. He wants to fix the world. He wants to give it life. Thieves are those that want us to perish. And there are all sorts of thieves, false teachers, health and wealth gospel purveyors, those who seek authority and worldly power, whose only effect on people's lives is to kill and steal and destroy. Such thieves may make it seem like they have people's best interest in mind. They want you to live your best and greatest life now. But in reality, they have absolutely no concern for people's well-being and they will lead others to death, away from abundant life for their own self-advancement, aggrandizement and worldly success. See John sets life and death in diametric contrast to one another. Anything that doesn't lead to life leads to death. Anything that doesn't lead to eternal life leads to perishing. Anything that doesn't lead to the way of Jesus leads to the way of destruction. And when we see the events in the world that lead to perishing, that lead away from abundant life, we can be sure that those events are due to the influence of thieves and false teachers and not due to the influence of Jesus Christ. 16th century German theologian Johannes Brenz wrote, It is the nature of wicked teaching to ruin, to kill, and to destroy consciences, as happened with Satan's first teaching. For he spoke not from the word of the Lord, but from a lie he concocted. You will be as gods. And we clearly see the fruit of this teaching in the assenting listener. Adam was ruined, killed, and destroyed. But those of us who believe in Jesus will not perish because we will not allow ourselves to be led astray by thieves and false teachers. We will have everlasting life because we will follow Jesus Christ, not the celebrities, not the political leaders, not even pastors or priests. We will know and follow Jesus Christ. God gave his son to the world so that we could be free from the way of death, so that we could be free from the thieves who seek to kill, steal, and destroy so that we could be free from the false teachers that tell us that worldly success and power and influence will make us great. John 3.16 tells us how God loves a broken and hostile world by giving his son to teach us how to live on this earth and to give his life so that we're no longer alienated from God. It tells us that we are loved. It tells us that God has undertaken this massive rescue operation to deliver the world from death to life. And those who believe in Jesus, not just with their minds, but with their whole hearts and whole lives, will be delivered from perishing and given eternal life, an eternal relationship with God which begins in the here and now. God wants us to have abundant and eternal life and not allow ourselves to follow the thieves who want only to steal and kill and destroy. God wants us to believe in and follow his son, not the false teachers who will lead us to perish for their own personal benefit. This passage tells us that this is the kind of love that God expects from his people. Not prideful, self-righteous, condemnatory moralizing, but rather life-giving, life-affirming, self-sacrificial love which seeks the well-being of a broken world. The famous evangelist Billy Graham once said, Love isn't just an emotion or a feeling. Loving someone means that we care what happens to them and we want it to be something good. This is the kind of love God has for us and it's the kind of love he wants us to have for others. This is the kind of love-filled, abundant life which God wants for us to live. The thieves and false teachers won't teach us this kind of love, and their way leads to perishing. If we look at John 3.16 and the surrounding verses as simply referring to how we can get to heaven, we miss all of this much larger picture of the good news. It's not just good news for then and the future, it's good news for now and the present. You've heard me say it before and I promise you, you'll hear me say it again. Following Christ is about so much more than earning our ticket to heaven when we die. It's about so much more than just getting our fire insurance to keep us out of hell. Christianity is not just about life after death, it's about life before death. Jesus didn't just die and then go and sit down and wait for you to show up in heaven. Jesus loves you here and now. God loves you here and now. And as crappy as it can be sometimes, God loves the world here and now. Believing in that love deeply in your heart should be reflected in your life. God showed his love by giving himself so that we could be free from the way of perishing, from the death and the destruction of thieves and false teachers in a hostile and alienated world. May we show this love of God to a broken and hurting world so that others may find eternal life rather than the way of perishing and destruction. Please pray with me. Loving God, giver of all light and life, you sent Jesus Christ into the world not to condemn, but to save. We thank you for this unfathomable gift of love and the offer of eternal and abundant life. May any who hear this message experience your saving love fully and completely. Help us not to follow the ways of the thieves who come only to kill, steal, and destroy, but rather to lift up the light of Christ so that the world might believe in him and receive the gift of abundant life may we experience your love and life and reflect that love and life to a broken and hurting world. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, the light of the world, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forevermore. Amen.